So consumeristic prayer is when we get in this cycle of transactionalism between God and I. It's about um, prayer is the place that I go to ask God for things and to give him what he wants. Because of course, if that's my worldview, then God is actually primarily concerned with what I can offer him. Mm. It's a transaction both ways. It's not just, I want from you, God, security and success and a husband or a wife or a, you know another child or whatever. It's also, God, you want from me to save the world, to, you know, evangelize everybody, to, you know, all of those things. And then we're just talking about now, currency that we're exchanging then, right? Exactly. It's a currency. But then you think about church, you think about if we start to look at Sundays and through that paradigm and, and the, the transactionalism between pastors and congregants or mission, it, it becomes very, even our evangelism is very transactional, has been very transactional. So I think we're actually, our, our, spirituality in the church is very consumeristic hey everyone welcome back to another episode of deep talks i'm your host paul hanleitner we're back again this week with strawn coleman hopefully you had an opportunity to listen to last week's episode featuring my conversation with strawn uh so many people reached out to me and said it was a really a transformative dialogue and um, the the feedback that I got from so many was really, really deeply encouraging. Uh, I th- hope you experience that same level of transformation, these sorts of insights, maybe a greater awareness of how God might be working through your story as you listen to today's episode. Strawn is a writer, award-winning folk musician, and spiritual director from New Zealand. He's the founder of Commoners Communion and the author of a brand new book available now, entitled Beholding, Deepening Our Experience with God. I'd encourage you to check out the link in my description where you could pick up a copy of Strawn's new book. I highly recommend it. I think as you listen to last week's conversation and then this week's uh, episode as well, I think you'll you'll get a glimpse into Strawn's heart and his journey in, in a way that I think will help complement the book in, in some important ways. Deep Talks is a listener-supported podcast, meaning there are no advertisements in this podcast. It's supported by people who think that it's of value enough to give even just a few bucks a month to keep it on the air. And not only that, but to keep my writing going for free over on Substack, the videos I produce on YouTube as well. So if any of that stuff resonates with you and you want to support the work I'm doing, please consider clicking the link in the description to become a supporter on Patreon. You'll see a bunch of perks as well that might be of interest to you. For example, if you wanted to watch the full unedited video of this conversation that I had with Strawn, that's available exclusively on my Patreon page. We also do live Q&A and discussions on Zoom with myself and listeners from all over. So there's a bunch of really cool opportunities. You're like, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. I want to support it. And I, in turn, go, great. Thank you for your support. Here are some ways I want to keep investing back into your life. And um, so you can check that out again at Deep Talks Theology Podcast, I should say, patreon.com backslash Deep Talks Theology Podcast. Thank you for your support. And here is part two of my conversation with Strong Coleman. Yeah, not, not just the experience, which experience is important, but it's realizing that our practices of worship are formational. So they're shaping us in a particular way too. And I think devoid of 
considering what is the telos of these practices and we prioritize just experience, one of my concerns has been that we have not been able to differentiate between, a f- you know, cognitive scientists might call it by various phenomenon. We some might say the flow state mm-hmm. or altered states of consciousness, or, or Jonathan Haidt calls it the hive switch. Like it's something that clicks on in us like bees, like a beehive makes us realize we're not individuals, but we're part of something larger. That mm-hmm. phenomenon happens at here in the the States, uh, an NFL football game, probably in New Zealand, it happens at a, a, a rugby match, right? When yeah, you're in the audience yeah. and everybody feels a sense of euphoria and connection that to simply have the experience is not satisfactory. It shouldn't be because what we're actually looking for is does the experience lead to the fruits of the spirit? That's the evidence of the spirits working. So we're we're then thinking about teleological concerns. What's the goal and the telos of this? And I, I think that was something. And I realized the church of the past, once I became aware that there was a church that existed in the past, <laughs> that some of these practices people had done with more of an eye towards the intentionality of what these practices would do to shape us in particular ways. And the question was, is this shaping us in a more Christ-like way? And without that intentionality to elevate experience, I, I think that's actually where we can get into a range of deceptions and actual idolatries, idolatrous practices, where we've said, hey, this the flow state. Now I'm, you know, I've I've grown up playing basketball. I've experienced the flow state playing basketball. I've experienced it playing music. Um, I've experienced in all sorts of ways that I go, oh, that actually feels similar to what I felt in like hour four of the prayer room. And that's not to say that it's reducible to just that, but that I think from where I sit these days, Strawn, I, I see that as God's intentional design in us to give us these channels that would make us hunger for those experiences, because the experiences do bring us into a state of like self-transcendence of moving beyond our ego and moving beyond our own selfish concerns. Mm. But to say that it's just that, and to stop there without consideration towards, well, what does this do? Like, you know, one of the things I think about Mm. Strong is like, you know, there's a, there is a, a, a benefit to like maybe a fervent, sort of intense prayer. Mm. But behind it, we need to ask the question, what does this practice actually say about God? And oftentimes in reflection, I look back on some of the prayer room practices I participated in, and it felt um, it felt like God was anxious to fix mm. the world. And mm. like, if we didn't get our act together, and if this revival didn't happen like this weekend, the world is collapsing. Uh, and and mm-hmm. in that, I don't think there was enough reflection on a, what does this practice actually say about God's character and nature? What are we saying in this practice? And in your book, you, you compare two different practices of prayer, or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe practice isn't even the right word. Um, motivations or orientations of the heart might be even better. Mm. One of them is consumeristic prayer. 
And the other is this practice of beholding, of contemplation. Mm. As you compare that, well, maybe first, can you describe, because I've had the privilege of reading the book and hopefully others will as well. Could you give a little description, a definition of what you mean by consumeristic prayer? And you've already talked about beholding and then maybe Mm. flesh out a little bit of what you think a practice of consumeristic prayer might actually disclose about people's thoughts on God versus Mm. practices Mm. like silence and contemplation and some of the other beholding practices yeah. that you describe yeah um so i mean i, I spending a pretty sizable amount of time in the in the book at the start there just addressing consumer spirituality and the way that uh i really feel like a lot of our churches has come to be built on consumerism and it's not i mean yes that's a criticism but it's also um and an admission. It's just part of we swim in the water of consumerism. We live in a deeply consumeristic world. Uh, but it's essentially in consumer in a consumerism environment, we are all about transactions. Our relationships are about transactions. Our money, finances about transactions. William T. Kavanaugh wrote an amazing book um on called Being Consumed, where he talked about this transition in products from you know, products used to be something that were embedded in the story of our lives. Maybe someone in our town made this product or it was handed down uh, through industrialization. We became disconnected from the people who made those products. So we we switched from the personhood story of my thing to uh, how do I get the cheapest thing at the earliest convenience, basically. Now, if you swim in that water for long enough, uh, you start to treat people that way. You start to use people uh, for influence or advantage or careerism. Uh, but worst of all, you start to treat God that way, where um, how can I get the best out of God and the earliest convenience with the least amount of sacrifice, basically, which kind of describes a lot of church life, right? Here are the seven keys to financial. Uh, here's the, you know. So consumeristic prayer is when we get in this cycle of transactionalism between God and I. It's about um, prayer is the place that I go to ask God for things and to give him what he wants, because, of course, if that's my worldview, then God is actually primarily concerned with what I can offer him. If mm. It's a transaction both ways. It's not just I want from you, God, security and success and a husband or a wife or a, you know another child or whatever. It's also, God, you want from me to save the world, to you know evangelize everybody, to you know all of those things. And then we're just talking about now, currency that we're exchanging then, right? Exactly. It's a currency. But then you think about church, you think about if we start to look at Sundays and through that paradigm and, and the, the transactionalism between pastors and congregants or mission, it, it becomes very, even our evangelism is very transactional, has been very transactional. So I think we're actually, our our spirituality in the church is very consumeristic um, because consumeristic spirituality helps to get things done in a church if we're honest you know like getting the transactional thing having a ceo with some staff and running a good ngo church gets things done uh, but it doesn't spiritually form us very well so um, that's consumeristic prayer consumeristic prayer is when prayer is really where we intercede repent um, petition uh, and praise so uh, beholding prayer is a little different beholding prayer is we might call it just abiding it is it is the sense of relational experience now we're talking about experience a lot. And I just want to be clear that when I say experience, I don't mean some kind of transcendent um, spiritual experience all the time. Most of what I mean when an experience is really relearning to see our current experience 
um, as divine and relearning, you know, reshaping our definition of expectation of experience. Mm. Um, and if you read the book, I do a, 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 bit, a whole chapter on real presence, the the theology of Eucharist and how that teaches us about the divine, you know, the, the beauty and the divine of our ordinary stuff. But beholding prayer is gazing into gazing into God, basically gazing into God as He gazes into us. It is wasting time with God. It is like it is the taking your wife out for a date after at year ten kind of stuff of prayer. It is simply for me. It's me sitting in my chair right here and just going, God, I'm available. And I'm going to breathe and I'm going to focus myself. I'm going to open up. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let all my stuff be seen by you. I just want to see you. And I want you to know that you're my priority. That is not trans. I don't know what I'm going to get. I might have an experience of God. I might just spend 20 minutes beating off all the thoughts about Lord of the Rings because I just watched it last night. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it is not there. I, and I can't get to the end of that time and, and tick boxes to say, I got this done, right? Now I can expect this. It is simply saying you, the very person of God, I want to live naked before you. And so I think in beholding what I'm trying to do is invite people as best I can into a story of what does it look like to move from this transactionalism with God into a deep friendship that is based on a shared presence? Um, and how do we reframe that so we're not expecting to be living on some higher spiritual plane all the time? Because that's the danger when you hear me talk of all this stuff is, well, maybe beholding is where you're just living in this yeah. emotional union with God. And if you've got that, praise be, but I do not. So uh, it is about reshaping expectation. Um, and I think for me, when I because I, I'm probably an intercessor by nature. I think that's where I've been. And it sounds like, you know, to some degree, that's probably true of your your story too, Paul. Um, but how I intercede now is very different to how I interceded when I was in a transactionalism. And a good example might be um, that prayer meeting where you're drumming it up. You're drumming up this kind of angst, this existential anxiety, the spiritual anxiety. Um, and you are, you are spending energy in a sense, to reach out to God and convince him to move. Um, and that might sound a little cynical. I'm not actually as cynical about it as that sounds. But um, but now what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to stop and I'm trying to be with God. Say, God, let me feel your heart. Let me empathize with your grief. Let me know what it feels like to be you in this moment, to see a broken world. Let me be filled with your person. Uh, and then help me to share that, to to let that flow outward and to embed into the cosmos around me so that our prayers are a, a co-laboring of love toward the world. And it's, it may sound like semantics, but it is a very different disposition. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when you get together to intercede, there is the sense of sharing in God and then letting that move, flow out rather than we need to have the energy to drum up. And if you constantly have to have the energy – You'll wear yourself out. But if you can tap into this gazing into God, receiving his love and then abiding in his own sorrow and grief for the poor, the poor and the broken, then this abidingness generates an amazing prayerful energy that I think is really beautiful and is probably a really exciting prospect to a lot of people who find prayer deeply exhausting and overwhelming. Mm. Yeah. And less duplicitous, I think. It's, it's less like... The world's going to hell in a handbasket and it's up to us and more let's participate in the prayer existing within the Trinity and let's enter in through friendship. Yeah. 
it seems like there's a different um seems like you've you've adapted a different speed in life Hmm. is that fair to say is that is that part of it does it almost feel like you know when i'm I'm reading this or uh, I'm, I'm i'm reading the things you post on on commoners communion there's um well you know you kind of mentioned lord of the rings I, I, you know if you ever you ever see wise people portrayed in the the great myths you know mm-hmm. they they seem to have a different pace about them right yeah. the the there's like a slowness and uh, I know there's concerns about that being in some settings considered like apathetic. Mm-hmm. Is is that an accurate picture of how you've experienced this change in your life from your 20s to where you are now to say, I've got a new rhythm and, it, and maybe it feels a little slower and maybe it feels like to some I'm not doing as much as what I I did before. Mm. Is that accurate? Yeah, very, very accurate. And that took me a long time to get used to. Um, because I, I think, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I think if you if you think about industrialization and consumerism and then you look at the way we arrange prayer meetings or church meetings or anything, we block out a period of time and we just slam it with just everything we can, you know, mm. all the noise, all the rush, all the the hurry to get it done. Um, and yet nothing in life is that way. And it really doesn't appear that God has acted ever that way in scripture. Um, <laughs> the, the, the slowness of God is painful. And I think that we presume that productivity, high productivity is linked to high fruitfulness. But I would argue that it's the opposite, and we're experiencing that in the church now, that our high productivity has actually led to a lack of fruitfulness. And this is, I think, what you were getting at earlier, Paul, when you're talking about fruit. What is the fruit of this? Well, the fruit of high productivity might be more quantity, um, but it doesn't make more maturity. It doesn't make more disciples, um, you know, true disciples. And so for me, when I got sick, I I was just on every level, the least productive person anyone knew. I mean, I just couldn't do anything. And yet my fruitfulness exploded and there was no way to explain it to anybody. It was just, it was this effortless stuff that was, was coming about. And um, that that's a work of grace that, that, that my fruit, I didn't say my fruitfulness exploded as in like I nailed it. It was more like a, yeah. a happy accident. <laughs> um, and so I, I've learned now that if I want to pray, um, if I want to pray, I need to I need to transform my existence. It's way more costly than it ever was. I can't I can't sit down for an hour and punch it out. I need to give it days, weeks, and maybe even months. Um, and I have to be patient enough to allow the fruit to arrive in season and not when I want it to. And it's out of control. I'm out of control. I got no control over God. He's not the genie that I rubbed to my, you know, 24-hour, seven-day prayer week at the start of the year. So God blesses the church. I mean, it just doesn't. You know, like, I mean, I don't know when he will bring about answers to the prayers that I ask, but what I know is if I want to enter into his heart and pray truly in the Trinity, that I need to wait and I need to let him do his work. And that costs me a lot, a lot of my pride, a lot of my energy. And so, yeah, I would say I'm slow. Um, 
partially maybe because of my health, but I would say also really because my whole paradigm for what productivity is has just changed. And and in prayer, I've learned that it is better to wait on God for many days without saying something um, than it is to exhaust myself with words asking for something that is the wrong question entirely. Um, and maybe that's the that's the transformation that has happened in my life. Um, but I, I do, yeah, it, it just has become a more beautiful journey. I don't really know. I don't know how to give it language. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> It seems um it seems like that's that's also the case when we have like the, the deepest human companionship you know well, for me it would be with you know with my wife and then with my kids and then you know my my family members my parents my brothers and sisters maybe after that I don't know I don't know how to rank it all um but there is a degree in which um it seems like the relationships that we might have as we move beyond our inner circle into the outer circle, when we're with company that we don't feel as close to, it feels like it has to be filled with more activity, right? Mm. To kind of generate that you don't have the intimacy there. And so there's a, there's an awkwardness to just sitting with somebody that's a stranger um, to just sit with somebody that, you've sowed, you know, I've been married 17 years. I don't know how long you've been married strong, but when you've been sitting with somebody that you've, you've done the activities with, and there is like this steep reservoir of shared experience, you, well, it's, it's what you notice when you go to a restaurant and you see a couple that's been married for 60 years, you you don't see a lot of talking oftentimes. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, when I was younger, I'd look at that and go, man, I hope I never get to that point. Cause that's, yeah. that seemed boring, yeah, you know? And I remember being, yeah. you know, in the younger days of following Jesus. And I would look at a church context, like I'm in now, which is probably a little bit quieter, a little bit, a little bit more liturgical. Um, and I would have looked at that and gone, man, what a dead church, mm. you know? I, I don't see that. I don't see that now. And I actually have learned to celebrate. There's a, there's a slowness and I, I don't know how you would get around that slowness mm. when you look at the biblical narrative. Mm. I don't know how you could actually think like if we extrapolate what we're saying and communicating in this liturgies, these liturgies of anxiety and God needs to save the world. And the way he's going to do it is you got to have to climb to the seven mountains of culture and you're going to have to run those seven mountains. Cause without that, you know, the world's going to go to the Satanists and the liberals and all this other stuff. And it's like, I don't know how you could live in that story and then look at the life of Jesus and go like, I mean, he's kind of an obscure blip on the historical radar. Mm. Not Alexander the Great. He's not Julius Caesar. He never spoke in any of the major amphitheaters around. Mm. I mean, it just doesn't make sense from the consumeristic framework. And so that's where I think maybe for some, it might just be an opportunity when you experience the dissonance. Mm. It's an opportunity to reassess the story that you're living in. And I see, I don't, you know. What maybe it's a chicken or an egg thing here, but 
I don't, I think it can come from top down or bottom up in some sense where it's like, you've somehow through reading books, like for me, Strawn, there was definitely like spiritual practices I was entering into, but I was laughing when you mentioned the Eucharist, because for me, that was a real game changer was when I actually started to study church history. And I started to look at the different ways that different traditions outside of mine had talked and thought about the practice of communion. And then I did this really stupid thing. You know, this was really dumb. I was like, you know, really struggling to make it as a musicianary, like, like, like you're well aware of. And I thought, you know what, I'm having these like revelations about the Eucharist and what it means and what communion means. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bank. This will be it like do or die. I'm either going to keep writing songs or I'm not. And it's going to be on this record and it's going to be a record all about the Eucharist, but it'll be still for charismatics. <laughs> and it flopped, <laughs> you know, it flopped. But for me, like the, the doorway in was a sense of realizing like, uh, I've got a story problem here, but I can also see from the bottom up where people's lived experiences. It's not like they've thought through the story and they're picking up theology books, but they're just going like this practice of prayer produces this in me. I've read Strawn's book and he recommended something like this. I've tried that and it's producing something else in me and not just producing something else in me. It's producing like a picture of God that now makes more sense with the narrative. So mm -hmm. would you, maybe you talk about this and obviously we, we, you know, we don't have enough time to lay out all of the things that you've laid out in your book, but maybe for those that are kind of at that bottom up, place of going, I've done these practices and like, they just don't work. I'm feel less of the fruits of the spirit in my life. I don't know how to live in the world and see God's presence in the mundane. I'm open to trying something different. And so again, not to make this a thing about like self-righteousness, but to actually mm -hmm. think about we're always being liturgically shaped and liturgically mm -hmm. formed. So are there some other liturgies that I could at least try that might actually, the spirit might be inviting me into. So do you have any maybe practical practices or practical tips that you might invite people to say, Hey, maybe you can't figure this out and think it all the way through. Maybe just try this and see how it like sort of hacks the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I can definitely, there's a, a couple that have been really transformative for me. I'd preface them by saying um, they're painful at the start. <laughs> you know, I think, I think when we, we we think about, and maybe this is my charismatic. There's always a little charismatic thing on my shoulder saying, "But don't you just pray the prayer of Jabez and everything changes?" Or you know what I mean? Um, so I mean, for starters, like my greatest spiritual formation in my life has come through ten years of undiagnosed, undiagnosable illness and pain. So let that just sink in for a minute before before you think there's an easy answer. Nothing has shaped me more than my submission and worship of God through suffering. So I, I think that sometimes, um, you know, we think of techniques, but if we think if we think more broadly, I, I think the place that I would start is to say this struggle that you're suffering and this pain you feel, whether it's this, I don't think I can belong to this community anymore. I don't know where I'm at with God, whether it's deconstruction or grief or trauma or depression or any of those things to take that thing as its whole. And to say this in itself is somehow offering me an opportunity to see the beauty and goodness of God. That's not to say it's good. 
That's not to say I want it or that God sent it. It is purely just to say my suffering is a liturgy that can draw me into God because the perfect revelation of God was a suffering person. And therefore, um, when we suffer mysteriously, and I'm not going to get into the thickets of the theology of it, we enter a place in God um, that is very direct and pure. So I think there's that. But in terms of practices, um, I think the two most formative things for me is I call one of them in the book unnoising. Um, I, I don't really know how else to do it. I, I, you could call it creating space. Uh, whatever you think you, however productive you think you need to be, just drop it down probably like 10 notches. I mean, I, I hope I'm not talking to any kind of like bong smoking couch potatoes out there. <laughs> Otherwise they just got the excuse for their knee. But I think generally we are an overproductively minded Christian culture. Uh, so I think unnoising for me is watching less TV. It is listening to less, less audio books. For me, as a mind person, I have to watch how many books I read. Sometimes I can get fully engrossed in just book after book after book, and it actually becomes a, an issue. Uh, it means walking instead of driving, uh, parking further away, not booking as many social events. You know, whatever whatever it is for you in your life, creating space of for existence to do things like just sit on the porch and watch the cars drive by or be attentive to your children when they're talking to you or not listening to a podcast while you're doing the dishes. And it sounds weird and unrelated, but what that does is it slows you down to the pace of God. It slows you down into the language of life because without getting too much into it, we built cities and we created sort of hyper environments and then we wonder why we can't hear God crowding into it all the time. And this is my problem with the church model at the moment is we've created concerts uh, and concerts aren't the easiest play. It's very hard to find God in a concert. So what we want to do in our life is unnoise it, whatever that looks like for you at the pace you can to make room for yourself, to the sediment of your inner noise, to slowly dissipate, to deal with your own stuff, to confront yourself and then to see God. Um, so, you know, sort your phone issues out, you know, get rid of notifications, keep it on silent all the time. That's what I do. My friends hate me. Um, you know, maybe just answer less emails, listen to less news, whatever it looks like for you, unnoise. And then the third practice I'd say after just sort of the way you see suffering in life, unnoising, the third would be um, silence. And I think don't hear silence as a lack of noise in your environment. Hear silence as an inner silence. Um learning to be silent in yourself before God rather than constantly bringing noise to him externally. And the way that you could do that is just light a candle in the morning for five or 10 minutes and just look at it. And uh, the practice I have is I imagine that there's like a doorway, like French doors right here in my chest. Mm -hmm. And that behind those French doors is every part of me, past, present, future, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, shameful, all the rest of it. I imagine just opening those up to God and saying, here's all my existence, and then just stilling myself before a candle or before a beautiful vista, and just saying, I'm available. And when distracting thoughts come in, I just say the word Jesus. And it happens like 100 times a minute, Jesus, Jesus. But the point, and the point isn't to have some amazing experience. The point isn't to, you know, get a, a revelation or approve myself. The point is just to exist before God. Um, and to receive his love, to receive his acceptance. So a specific focus on receiving God's love and empathy toward me. 
Um, that over time maybe won't happen in a day or two, but over like months and maybe years of your life, as strange as it sounds, that will probably become the greatest treasure of your life. And you may end up like me, forcing yourself to say words sometimes. <laughs> um, so I would say, see suffering as a vehicle and an opportunity to know God, not as a hindrance. And I think that can't be said loud enough. Unnoise our lives. And then just a little practice of silence every day and stretch it out over time. Um, all of those dispositions are about creating space within ourselves to experience God in surprising ways, I think. That's beautiful. And I think it might even be helpful to those. There's Obviously, there's a, a good segment of the listening audience that comes from Christian context, but because I have these dialogues with people that might not you know, share all my Christian convictions, there's certainly some that are just, I call them transcendence hunters. You know, they're yeah. just they're not satisfied with the secular frame. And so they're, they're curious about the the role of religion and mm. finding meaning and purpose. And I think you've actually afforded some, some practices, some invitations that I, I actually think are appealing to people that are used to being told that meaning is found in imminence and what's in mm. front of you but now you've given them a vehicle to say, hey, you know, it's it's not that the thing intrinsically in and of itself, that candle that you were looking at, that the thing in and of itself is the end, the chief aim of your desires, but it's actually to see that this is a potential doorway, an icon to help us see the God that tran transcends. And I th I think that I think there could be something there even for people that are going, no, I, I, I have no problem with that right now has value. And it's mm -hmm. like, um, I've described it maybe as we've got spiritual practices that are like a microscope mm -hmm. and spiritual practices that are like a telescope. And the microscope helps mm -hmm. us see underneath our nose, the activity of God that we miss. And the telescope might be the, you know, the, the four hour exuberant prayer meeting which helps yeah. us like, oh, whoa, there's a God that is mind blowing and looking out at constellations sort of like, mm -hmm. and to have both. Mm -hmm. I think the microscope stuff is, I think there's a lot of attraction people are having and, and pursuing that and things like just practices of like meditation detached from mm -hmm. Christian spirituality. So I, I think you have mm -hmm. something here, Strawn, that is timely so I, I really want to commend this book. Um, so I want to commend that not as a consumeristic transaction to be hypocritical, <laughs> but because I think it's something of value. And when people make things of value that is of benefit, um, I think there's, there is a Christian principle that we should give some of what we value in exchange for that. So I would really encourage you all to go and, and to pick up Bless Strawn in a way by saying, Hey, I see that what you're doing has value. And then I, I think that would be, be a benefit to continue um, encouraging him to keep doing this work. I'm, I'm, I've been blessed by it strong. And I, I hope when it comes out to actually Thanks, to purchase a, a real physical copy as well, what might be some other ways that people listening today and they came in just as regular listeners of mine, they'd never even heard of you go, Hey, I, I want to learn more. Like I like what this guy has to say, how can they continue to connect with you? 
So I uh, I write prayers and they're kind of contemplations really and benedictions on Instagram under Commoners Communion is my handle. Uh, but also I, I've done a podcast myself and it's really that first se- that first season of the podcast is me taking people through the journey of my my first experience into that and then there's just these seasons of really prayerful listenings episodes about 10 15 minutes long with music um and their ways of kind of immersing ourselves in this alternate way of seeing the world a more slower uh, a more eucharistic or a more sort of beholding thing and i think that that's probably a great place to go and um, the podcast is just called commoners communion um and if and i've also done prayer books so I've, i think i think all the things that i've tried to do have been ways launch pads i guess if prayer is a difficult thing for you the prayer books are a way of of having a starting point something very easy to read each page maybe 40 seconds to a minute and a half or something that inspires the heart to move um because i think for me in those seasons of my life that's what i needed just something to give my heart a little bit of a an angle to move toward god so uh, you can find those prayer books probably in, if you just search commoners communion you'll find them out there Beautiful. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was such a joy to get to talk to you, Strawn, and I'm, I'm thankful for your time. I'm thankful that we were able to make this connection across the world, and uh, I hope too, we man. get to do it again sometime. Thanks, bro. Me too. I really appreciated it today. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. The conversation, though, is incomplete without your voice participating in it. So please reach out to me. Those of you that are patrons, reach out to me, send me a message, participate in the discussion forum for this episode or in our Deep Talks Discord server. Tell me what you've learned. Tell me your points of agreement, points of resonance, points of dissonance. I love hearing all of it. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram at Paul Anleitner. I love hearing from people on those channels as well. This podcast wouldn't happen without the generous support of people like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, and Sam P. Thank you all for your continued generous support. I quite literally can't keep doing this work without you. So thank you. I hope you get a sense of fulfillment and meaning knowing that you are making this thing happen with me. Thank you very much. Well, friends, I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.